Hello and welcome to the Calculate Absurdity Podcast with your hosts, Peter and Elias. We don't have Tom today, uh, but instead we have a first official guest, Max. Hey guys, thank Hello. you very much for letting me be here, very excited. Yeah, so Max is in town for some other things and crashed at my place, cooked some food, had some fun, played some games, but not the typical games we'd play. We played some board games and shot the shit. Catching up. <clears throat> wasted a lot of eh, we didn't waste time but man the end of that game was a disappointment <laughs> yeah a little bit um so the game in question is um the cryptozoic dc deck building game it's kind of just a like card game but uh, we play the variant where we play cooperatively and even with us kind of bending the rules a little bit we still could not beat it so shout out to will who understands the misery He's listening. Uh, shout out to the game for actually being a difficult game to play and win. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's there's something there's something not very satisfying when you get a game, you, know, you play it, you beat it, and you know most of them they don't even have hard settings anymore. Mm -hmm. And then you know it sort of seems like most of the games are built for a very very casual experience, uh, without really asking the player to think through nuances of the game. You can just brute your way force mm -hmm. through most games which was nice i definitely like the you you could tell whoever made the game played it multiple times and thought about like every little small nuance mm -hmm. um in relation to um what is it phrasing and oh yeah card combinations and everything yeah 100 percent. i mean uh as I was alluding to, this this game normally you're, you're playing against each other. Like this game actually is so popular that there's like a competitive league mm. for it, um, and there's certain heroes that are actually banned from competitive yeah. play because their powers are just like so fucking strong. I don't like, remember like, them off the like top the of my Wonder head. Like the Wonder Woman one, maybe. <laughs> I, it, Which showed up when we needed it most. <laughs> no, like the actual like superhero card who you oh. play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely a fun game. What, Max? How was your experience? You know, this was sort of my first time playing a game like this. Uh, this sort of build, build, deck building. Know, yeah, deck building thing. I mean, it was it was actually pretty great. It was it was engaging. It was you know, obviously the learning curve was a little bit there in the first 15, 20 minutes, but it it was naturally pretty easy to play then um, you just have to really pay attention to all the words on the cards. Yeah. But um, not the kind of game I usually play. I would play again. What kind of games do you like? I mean, classic, you know, Monopoly, Risk, if you have a whole day. Um, whole day Risk? Chess. You know, like have, sort of real old school games. Have you guys played Settlers of Catan? Oh, yes. yes. Settlers. I have yet to play that. It's a fun game. Okay. I need, to, I need to just get around to playing that because I have yet to play it. It's it's another one of those games of like the category that Max described that's like mm. friendship destroying games. Nice. Yeah. Resource acquisition. Great. Yeah. No, I back in high school and Sean could speak to this, like we were super into Settlers of Catan because mm -hmm. like we just played it in our class. Mm -hmm. So we had to play like our stints. So yeah. we had like speed round rules and shit like that. But it got fucking competitive. That's cool. Yeah. I met my fiance playing Settlers of Catan the first time. Really? Really? Yeah. Huh, I let nice. her win. Aw. Uh, really? 
That's how I remember it. <laughs> she tells she her says story. Otherwise. She got destroyed. <laughs> no, she she tells her story. Yeah, I destroyed him in a strategy game. Actually, a game that I think that you would like, Max, um, is uh, it's called Seventh Wonder. I think it is. You remember we played that at um, when you were living with Ken way back when? It was the one where we were different civilizations, and we got like um, it was a resource management. We had to build wonders and stuff like that to win the game. I I don't think I was part of this. Really? Yeah. Sounds it's, like a board game. It's not AOE. ringing bell. It's it's um it's a board game, but there's also cards to it as well. Um, but kind of like AOE. So like the resources is like military power or like political power resources and things like that. It's, it's a long play game Mm. as well. So that's why I think you would like it. I played a game called letters from Whitechapel. That was a fun game. Have you heard of it? The only Whitechapel I know of is the band. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) definitely not that. Um, Basically, this game is set up where one player is Jack the Ripper, um, <laughs> and everybody else are you know. Does like a knife come in the box? Like women, like just getting preyed on, basically. Is there and like I, costumes for prostitutes in the no, box? It's, a, it's actually a very simple game. It's it's a huge map, like a board game map of Whitechapel of a city. Yeah, and um, Jack the Ripper records like his movements across the city only to himself and then everybody else oh sorry no everybody else don't play as the victims they play as police detectives um and your your objective is to ask jack the questions of like where he's been kind of and only he knows where he's been we don't know his movements so we sort of start putting markers on the map and basically you try to find a way to corner him before he gets to his hideaway. And if he gets to his hideaway, the night resets and blah, blah, blah. And the night progresses. And, um, it's just a really fun game. It's a, it's a matter of asking questions, like good questions of like location uh, of Jack the Ripper's location. And then getting enough information to track his patterns and figure out where his hideout might be within the city. Mm. Um, and it was awesome because the, la- the last time I played, um, there's a situ- and there's a situation where I was in one spot, uh, my teammate was in another spot, and there was one spot between us. And um, there's something that you can do where if you presume that he is standing in a certain location, you can issue an arrest. And he just happened to be right between us, but she had two options to pick, and she's just like, "Hold on, hold on, hold on. You have to be. You must be like right between us. I'm gonna issue an arrest, and boom, we got him, and we won. It was pretty cool. Definitely a fun game. Is this another one of those um, crowd crowd funded games? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. My only other really experience with those kind of games is, man, eight ten years ago, uh, my cousin crowd you know invested in this crowdfunding for some kind of zombie game and you know it involves rolling and killing zombies and basically the layout is you have a uh, you, know, you have a board and on top of that board you build also i think i think it's either plastic or cardboard paper sort of um walls and design for that level oh. and there's a number of levels you know i don't know there was a, quite a number of levels but then you know you go through this game and zombies pop up, so you have these little miniature figures. I forgot exactly how you put them on the board, but there was an abundance of them. And then you and your character, you can play. You 
we played as a team at least, you know, you're trying to get through the level, kill all the zombies without dying, oh. get power-ups and stuff like that. And um, for, for a board game, I was surprised how much just they got out of that format and how fun they were able to make it with that. And um, so, yeah, I, I enjoyed all the crowdfunded type games that I've played so far. Yeah. I've really enjoyed. A lot of those are flops, like speaking of like crowdfunding in general. Mm-hmm. It's it's honestly like a dime a dozen where like something good comes out of the crowdfunding space. So when you say flops, do you mean commercially flops, or it's just a, the product? The end, the outcome of the product is just not good. Uh, there's there's a couple of things that I'm referring to with flops. So one is they hit their goal, but they just can't meet like specific production deadlines, and they run into complications. I actually mm-hmm. backed a 3D printer way back when. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like a small form, but taller 3D printer. Mm-hmm. And they went under just because like they couldn't get to the level of quality they wanted and just a lot of complications in their uh, manufacturing process. Mm-hmm. So they basically filed bankruptcy and then just issued back everyone refunds. Um, and then I obviously have a couple good uh, things with with crowdfunding. I mean, the the one board game, uh, interactive puzzle thing that I showed you downstairs, Max. That was a year-long backing thing, and the first box I, I supported it to the tier where I'm going to get all three. Um, it's Arkham Files or something like that. It's an augmented reality like puzzle adventure mm-hmm. game. And mixed medium. Yeah, and I I'm having a blast with it, and I think most people that have gotten it already are getting a blast from it, but. Just looking at it, like you have Kickstarter, you have Indiegogo, and it's just kind of like the fine language is what really is is like important because Kickstarter, you can get the money, and even if you don't achieve it or even like don't deliver anything, I'm pretty sure you're allowed to just keep whatever money comes through. While over on Indiegogo, you have to hit your goal, and you have to actually start producing or manufacturing whatever yeah. it is you promise like they hold you accountable mm-hmm. which is i don't know how they do that besides fine print in like yeah contract language because <laughs> i guess if you i mean if you start collecting money and you spend it I, I don't know like how do you i wonder how you enforce something like that well clawing that money back would be very difficult practically speaking right yeah just like even if you have the right to claw that money back, the practical ability to do so is really what determines whether you're ever going to do it. So that's any of those any of those rights are always any rights are pretty much practically they just rely on your ability to actually enforce them. Mm-hmm. People, um, um, I guess, changing the topic a little bit, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, we had a. Uh, <laughs> We had a funny situation. So basically, um, uh, my mom comes home. I was staying at my parents' house, and she comes home to find some white markings on her lawn. And and then she kind of figures out that they're putting a new fiber optic cable oh. into the neighborhood. And so right now they get they get about fifty megabytes download speed. Shit. Yeah, it's like that. <laughs> um, oh. And so hey, it's playable for league. It yeah. is. It, it, <laughs> It is technically playable for League. They, they say, what, you need 25? <laughs> but anyways, so I see this, and I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I can't wait to have internet, which lets me stream a movie. Um, but she loses her mind. And she thinks that they're going to put in fiber optic cable to everybody in at least her cul-de-sac. 
just through her yard. <laughs> um, we try to explain that uh, that's not really how this works, but you know she, she doesn't she doesn't really she doesn't really believe us on this, and she does not want anybody touching her yard whatsoever. And so pretty quickly she was just like, you know, how can they do this? I was like, well, you're part of a homeowners association, as you know, but because you pay these dues. She's like, she's a old Soviet woman. Maxim, what you mean they can decide to put this on my property? I thought I came here for freedom. Um, <laughs> I loved that take. Um, I explained to her that <laughs> how homeowners associations work, and then we had a very interesting thing. She was like, Maxim, I will not allow this. Uh, and I was like, okay, um, you know, legally they have every right to do this. I'm sure they have an easement. I'm sure this was approved. I'm sure you got notices in your mail about uh, meetings. You, there's not really anything you can do. And then my dad comes in and he goes, I have looked I have looked at this agreement. There is nothing we can do about this. And that is um, that's sort of the main point of what I'm coming to here is that right, on, on the face on the face of that document, the HOA definitely fully has the power to really enforce whatever it wants largely. Mm -hmm. But then it really comes about your practical ability to uh, can they? Well yes, they'll have to hire a lawyer. And so in these kind of situations, the way the way you can win although you're not legally correct, is you make something so difficult and so expensive that it forces them to find another path of least resistance. <laughs> um, ultimately, we convinced her that everyone in the neighborhood is going to have these lines cut in front of them, uh -huh. and she, she went away with it. But, uh, but she began, she like spent hours starting to research the $15,000 or so it would cost for us to make this so expensive for the HOA yeah. to, for them to just have to go somewhere else. <laughs> how, how far did that plan go? Um, uh, pretty far. She re she researches things very quickly. She made a list of lawyers. She actually found like there's folks that specialize in it. You know, she yeah, really HOA bullshit. Yeah, yeah. She she uh, she would have made a great lawyer. She did great research. But um, I know I, I just I just think it's very funny about it, it's everything everything laws about practically your ability to do it. So that's an interesting topic. I live in an HOA, and my vibe from them is they're pretty lax. I haven't had the desire to be in an HOA meeting yet or anything just to see what's going on because everything's pretty transparent. They send out letters after meetings immediately and they give you a time frame to still talk about it if you have concerns. But what are your guys' standpoints on HOAs? Because to me, as the only homeowner in, uh, on the podcast right now, I don't think they're going away. If anything, I think they're going to pop up more frequently. Yeah. And... There, in terms of like who is able to be on the board of management and manage it, it can swing either being a pain in the ass or being kind of like what I have, where it's mm -hmm. like pretty, pretty sweet deal. Yeah. Um, I I don't know. I I guess it really just comes. How are the people in HOAs appointed? Votes. Oh well. Well, the the initial it's it's uh, appointed people. But then afterwards, once the, the area is developed, then you can get on the HOA board by votes of the community. So it's, it's, a, it's a small government, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I guess, you know, are they going away? They're absolutely not going away. So this concept of an HOA is very well protected uh, in American legal right. It, it is a contract through which we agree to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. And maybe in some different places you can fight about the very small, specific things that may not be covered by this, but overall, it's very clear that this works and there's not really a way to challenge the, the broader concept of an HOA. And then it also largely just makes sense for most people, mm -hmm. right? Most people want to move in in a place where there is some sort of control. 
Uh, and so, like, how do I feel about him? I don't like him. Are we allowed to curse on this podcast? Yeah. Fuck him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, um, but that's because I'm the kind of person that is most likely to run into some foul of, of what an HOA would say. I'm mm-hmm. not going to go ask anybody if I can build or destroy something from my property. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a much more uh, ask for uh, forgiveness than permission, especially with some barely elected body. Well, there's there's twofold with building, right? If you live in an HOA, the the first is getting HOA approval to do it for just like visual appearance in the neighborhood. I mean, I d- drove you guys through my neighborhood yesterday. All the houses look pretty similar, right? Everything's pretty upkept, whatever. But again, there's some flexibility to things as long yeah. as the HOA is good with it. The other half of it, which is where you can get into proper trouble, is county or village approval for the stuff that you do. Okay. <laughs> There's ways around it if you're smart enough and basically do a, I know you fucked up. You know I fucked up. Let's just shake hands and walk away. Mm. Water under the bridge. And that's kind of what happened with my fence. I Wait, what happened with your fence? I don't my, think I heard this. My fence isn't supposed to be as big as it's, it is. Let's tell as, everyone uh, about this. Like in terms of the uh, floor plan or like how tall it is? Uh, the sizing the area hmm. that encompasses oh, did it have to do with that sidewalk that you're yes okay what yeah. was that again i'm you not supposed about to, that i'm not supposed to be that close to the sidewalk <laughs> but here's here's the fun thing right so allegedly the way it came down someone called into the uh, my hoa was like hey this looks weird we're not sure if it's right can you check on it hoa looks at it they're like we approved the whatever let's talk to the village village um reviewer looks at it and then he calls me he's like hey we messed up I'm like what do you mean you messed up like you're not supposed to be that close to the sidewalk (laughs) i'm like the work is done he's like yeah you're supposed to be like 10 feet away from the sidewalk oh yeah 10 yeah (laughs) (laughs) what are you at right now what 12 inches two Two. feet (laughs) um and he's like and i i just started to go well the work's done because he was basically saying, like, because you didn't go by, like, the, the village regulations, we can close your permit. And I go, the work's done. There's, yeah, I don't right. need the permit anymore, yeah. right? So he's like, right. So let's do this. Because I've seen your fence. I like your fence. It's not obstructing any views. And that's the most important part because I'm a corner house. Mm-hmm. Obstructing the view of the intersection is the most concerning thing. They don't oh, really yeah. care otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. And I mowed that side of the of the house anyways. It's yeah. it's not the public people. Um, and he's like, I like the fence. It's not obstructing. It complies with everything else. You, your um, length for some of your dimensions are a little off, but like that's whatever. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a conditional approval. But if someone else calls about it, we'll talk and see what we what we have to do. And yeah. I, I was just like, I'll be out front right now. I'm not going to pay for it to be moved. Yeah. Because I already paid for it to be installed. Mm-hmm. You guys approved it and everything. But with what you're saying, deal. That's perfectly cool. fine. And it's been six, seven months. Nice. <laughs> I mean, let's see where that goes. Yeah, in the infant stages of a fence's lifespan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the fence went up in two days, mm-hmm. right? Like That's they had great. no capacity to stop anything unless they were out every yeah. single day. I mean, they had a guy come out and um, measure up and like inspect the holes that the posts go into. Mm-hmm. Idiot didn't say a fucking word. Mm. That was the time to say something. Yeah. Because you would have seen the post holes where they are supposed to be. Yeah. However, back to HOA powers, 
everything you say, let's take everything you say to be true, there's probably some sort of clause in that HOA agreement that goes something along the lines of, if we made a mistake with permitting or zoning... HOA didn't have it. The village did. The village did. Okay. The village had protection for them, if basically what you're implying of. If we made a mistake, we're not held accountable. You still right. have to yeah. comply to the, the, the codes that we establish mm -hmm. as the building codes for our village. Yeah. Hmm. But the dude's just like, no harm, no foul, dude. <laughs> it's like, yes. Yeah, it's so funny because like even I, like with no experience, when I saw how close it was to the sidewalk, I, I, I questioned it. Yeah. I did question it naturally because it seemed very close. Yeah. But for that guy to just kind of brush it off, I guess... Yeah, I Maybe mean, it's not a normal thing. I don't know. It's it's funny though because like a lot of places you can go up to the sidewalk. Hmm. It's just a matter of what the specific yeah. area requires in terms of building care. I see. Definitely don't like those kind of places where what? like the ones where you can go all, almost um, right up to the sidewalk. I, I think it sort of um, hampers my ability to walk properly in a sidewalk yeah. and. Well, no, what, what do you mean? Like, so Are you stumbling back and forth? No, he's that getting much tangled sidewalk? up in his chains. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but let's say, you know, the sidewalk is, is about as wide as this table. Let's say there, there's two of us walking together. Mm. You know, if there is no wall that my hand is going to run into, I can walk much closer to the edge of the sidewalk, just carelessly swinging my arms. If there is a wall there, I've got to, like, adjust my whole body. And more importantly, like, the whole, the, walking on the, sideway, on the sidewalk, it's not about just that little tunnel. It's about being able to, to walk without obstruction. And I feel like if there's a fence here right next to me, it might make me t mad enough, and I, I just don't want a fence to be there. Let's keep it a couple feet away from the... <laughs> from I mean, the I, I, don't, I don't disagree with you. I think most of the places I've seen where the fence is up to the sidewalk, it's chain link fence. Mm. So it's like waist height, you can see through it and stuff like that. It's more just like to contain a pet or something, giving them as much freedom mm -hmm. as they can. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll, I'll tell you, like the best thing you can ever do for... Well, actually, arguable best thing you can do is buy a house in a um, area that is, uh, what's what's the phrase? Unincorporated? Yes, unincorporated. But the only problem with that is you don't have any, like there's no money in like that area for mm -hmm. like public service stuff, right? It f will fall down to the village and it's kind of like up to them if they want to even go into the unincorporated area to do stuff for you, yeah. right? Like I was looking, when we were house hunting, we looked at a couple houses in unincorporated areas and they just looked dilapidated. It was all well water. It wasn't like city water or anything like that. Yeah. Um, there was no like rain sewage system. It was all like ditches into a runoff and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, the houses were just kind of run down, yards overgrown and all this shit. Roads were kind of beat up pretty good. And I imagine if it snows, no one comes through and plows unless like there's someone in the area that has a truck that has a plow blade on it. So there's like two sides to every argument to a degree, especially when you start looking and you get more exposure to it, you'll realize real quick. Yeah. Does would would HOA protect against any um, increased like uh, I don't know how to phrase this like Airbnb? applications oh, yeah. Oh, yeah they they will for sure have something in their language if yeah. that's a concern like um apartment I mean, hoas they generally will have a statement of like you cannot rent out yeah. a property in this building 
Okay. Um, on Airbnb or or a similar yeah because site like no short term rentals yeah yeah D- despite despite what HOAs are I I feel as though um with the path that we're taking into the future I don't know um to your point uh, to both your points it's not going away but I I feel as though uh, despite we don't have like the ultimate freedom of doing literally whatever we want up to a point with our own property, I think having some metric of um, standardization across the properties, I think is beneficial for everyone at some point, right? Agree to... Reluctantly disagree. I I reluctantly agree with you. I think for most people, it does make sense. I'm just not one of those people. Mm. Yeah, like I'm I'm kind of there too, where like I agree with some parts of that, but then I disagree um, in, in some components as well, where it's like, let's say... My entire neighborhood, everyone has a fence. What does it fucking matter what I do within my fence boundaries, right? But the HOA, if you have a a Karen essentially on Mm -hmm. the HOA board, they might peer over your fence and then cite you up for it, Mm -hmm. right? And and that's the kind of stuff that, that's the thing that I really dislike about HOAs are the the bogus rules and uh, standards that are being made like some of them just don't make sense. It's just annoying. Like why did why did you even come up with this? Yeah. I mean, it's it all comes down to like community image, right? Yeah. Like that's the whole idea. Again, every single house in my neighborhood looks the same, but there's enough nuance and it even actually cites it in the HOA bylaws that like every third house can be the same, mm. but everything in between has to be mixed up when they were developing it. Yeah. Um and I mean, to kind of put a stop to that, all you have to do is join the HOA board. Right. Right. Become wait, a member. Wait, wait, be an active participant. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, to, to join the HOA board. To, to, or just to, be an active voice in it. Okay. Even. Because yeah, my question was going to be, to join the board, don't I have to be elected? And is there is there a way for non-elected people to participate yes. outside of just going to those meetings? Yeah. So, for the example, for my neighborhood, um, we have two HOA meetings a year. And because since COVID, you can either be in person, they'll tell you where it is, or you can join via Zoom. And like, you can ask questions, raise concerns and things like that. Um, In November, they were actually just holding like board elections. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I was new in, I didn't want to get on yet because I wanted to see how the HOA was. And my current vibe is they're chilled people. Like I think majority of the people out here are like union labor guys. Mm -hmm. So they're super laid back. Yeah. Uh, and they don't really give a shit. Even if the HOA was knocking on the door, they'll be like, get the fuck off my property, <laughs> you know? Um, but I also don't really care because my HOA fees are $300 a year. <laughs> so 25 bucks a month, yeah. 12 bucks a month. Nice. I'm like, they don't have any money to do anything against me anyways. Mm-hmm. All, and as part of the meetings, they do a full budget rundown. Like I have copies from last year of what the budget is allocated to and like how much is sitting in the reserve and stuff like that. That's yeah. awesome. That's exactly. So, I mean, that, that's actually very helpful information because mm-hmm. if you do want to challenge something, you can estimate what they're spending, how, A, how bad do you want this thing done? Mm-hmm. How much money does it look like they have? Mm-hmm. Which one of those numbers is bigger? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, like I, I love the transparency and that's more why like I'm not concerned. Like no one's getting paid, Right. Everyone's elected on at this point because mm. my areas developed in 2002. So all the original people ran off and started bullshitting the next HOA development area. 
Um, but most of the funds is to the maintenance of the retention ponds, mm -hmm. or actually that one specifically, and like the surrounding area, and um, paying the village for uh, plowing snow, hmm. and just general like road upkeep and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty sweet deal out yeah. here. I'm honestly surprised. I think my landlord, if I recall, pays three hundred something a month. And HOA dues for a condo. Yeah, HOAs. I mean, most of the horror stories you hear are from HOAs that charge you like one to like two thousand dollars a month, right? Yeah. yeah, but but that's usually um, those are really old buildings. right? Yeah, it's usually bigger buildings that bigger, require like large oil. upkeep costs. Like, yeah, if you need a new elevator, a new elevator for for a twenty something story building is gonna is over a million dollars. Mm -hmm. You, know, you got to put a new roof, like it's it's that kind of stuff. So yeah, those are the stories where you hear somebody moves in, their fee, their HOA monthly fee was like five hundred dollars or something. Yeah, boom, when you need a new roof, it's whatever two hundred thousand dollars. Your HOA fee is going to be you know, twelve hundred now for the next three years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's funny because stuff like that is never really accounted for, and people get pissy about the increase in their HOA fees. But it's like realistically. That's like, how this works. Right. This is how this works. That's how your building is upkept. Yeah. Well, well, actually, I guess to counter that, a, a good HOA administration would, you know, their budget is not just, you know, here's the money we take in. We're going to spend all this money. You know, you're supposed to be setting reserves aside. Oh, yeah. So a lot of, and a lot of builders do, but a lot of buildings don't. And then there's also should be the capacity to be able to pull out like a large business loan to be able to do this. And your HOA fees mm -hmm. can pay into it without an increase if they're yeah. smart. Right, it's 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 all in the accounting of whatever management company does the HOA mm -hmm. or whoever's on the board and things like that for the HOA. One hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, you it's going to be impossible to find a place that is not in an HOA nowadays. Mm -hmm. Not to uh, change this, change the subject here, Max. Was there was there some things that you wanted to talk about? Uh, yeah, I, I want to tell you guys a story about. Um, Gray market cars and the twenty-five year rule. If you've if, if you've heard of what that is, no. I've All right. So so I see Peter laughing, and and so he has. And so the reason I'm thinking this is because I just landed in Chicago yesterday. I was driving around. I kind of noticed there's there's not that many interesting cars around here. There are. You and, just didn't see them. Yeah. Well, but to me it makes sense, right? Because like saw you know, a Chrome it, Tesla once at one point. Oh man. <laughs> But but what I did notice was a surprising number of, of old school off road vehicles and, and a number of those cars that were never sold in the United States. Um, and so there's this rule and there's an interesting story about it. Um, oh, that, that is the Chrome Tesla. I, I honestly don't like it. Um, yeah. It's obnoxious. <laughs> a little bit. But so, so the 25 year rule has this story. I guess first let me tell you what it is. A 20, uh, there's a 25-year exemption under the National Highway Tra Traffic Safety Administration Act uh, <laughs> under the amendment they added in 1988. And what it does is if you have a car that's 25 years or older, you can import it into the, the United States without it having to meet United States uh, crash, uh, crash and safety tests. Uh -huh. And the reason that's really important is because uh, outside of that, if you bring in a car that was never, th this process is called federalization. You make a car, you know, you test it and crash it and do all the, all the regulatory stuff to federalize it for American roads. Um, but if you don't do that, um, it, it's practically impossible for somebody who's not very, very wealthy to bring that car in outside of some minor exceptions that we don't need to get into. 
but that means like and people who have tried it uh, you know spent millions to do it so like a ballpark number i've heard thrown around before is for a car company to certify you know, a sedan a decade ago would cost 40 to 50 million dollars so a lot of times they don't want to do it but um uh, and so so this this is this is the, the rule we have now so now you know, it's 2023, so cars that were made in 1998 anywhere in the world are now eligible to be imported to the United States, so expect a flood of later model Skylines and, and, and sort of all those JDM vehicles. But how we got this rule is interesting because it came down to uh, Mercedes-Benz fighting very heavily um, against people who were doing something called gray market or parallel market imports. And so what that is is back in this... Uh, this really went on from 1976 to 1988. 1988 is when this, this law was passed, which ended this practice. And I don't remember exactly what started in 1976, but the premise basically was you could go in, in America, let's say you could buy a Mercedes for making up a number, $8,000. Uh-huh. Uh, but because of um, uh, how currencies, um, the currency exchange rates at the time, that exact same car w- would cost $5,000 if you bought it from Germany. And... Um, you didn't um it actually looked a little better because of, of of some rules and regulations and so what this resulted in was tens of thousands of cars being imported into the united states and not sold through dealership chains which made um obviously the dealerships very upset about this and as an example in 1978 79 maybe something like that it was something like 50,000 mercedes alone were gray imported into the United States, which uh, a value of about $300 million. And so the dealers pushed pushed uh, very hard on Mercedes, and Mercedes lobbied for a while um, until the federal, and so their argument here was, um, these cars are just not safe to, to be on American roads. We cannot allow them in. And of course, Mercedes-Benz won. Uh, but... Uh, it, then, then there was, but there was this guy, and and he was the he he was like some bureaucrat who worked at the Department of National Highway Tra- Traffic Safety, just uh, just a, just another bureaucrat. But this guy absolutely loved vehicles, and then he was the one that ultimately added this exemption, um, and and the reason he added it is because he, he really wanted some Ferraris. And this, this, <laughs> this was back, yeah. No, we, we laugh now because like, oh, Ferraris, very expensive cars. You got to remember. Yeah. much cheaper yeah in the 70s and 80s these were old unreliable beat up sports cars some of these cars that are worth 12 15 million dollars today were worth ten thousand yeah. dollars or four thousand dollars in 1978 mm. um this guy really loved ferraris and actually i guess it's part of a separate story while he worked for the national highway trip and nthsa um he also he, he wrote like a definitive volume on ferrari at the time uh, he was he was given credit with uh, wait. With that. This is the same dude that wrote the the book with, of like the Ferrari catalog, essentially. Um, so I remember he would have done this in the in the late seventies or early eighties. So it would have it would have only been like thirty years of history, right? But it was the definitive volume for that you know until that then. that period. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, and then he um you know he owned what a fanboy. Yeah, yeah, he owned more than fifty Ferraris. Fuck. Yeah. And so, that's a great question. That's something we have to read about. But yeah, a lot of people give this guy credit for bringing storage center. Yeah, (laughs) but for for bringing Ferraris to prominence, like a lot of these cars, like he literally, you know, he owned this car and he told people about it, and then Mm -hmm. later on, as it, you know, people remembered it, it came to be worth more and more and more. Um, 
but really, I, I just thought this is an interesting story about how this guy who absolutely loved cars got all of us a little exemption that made it a little bit easier to buy cool cars, uh, all in the face of a, you know, the largest, one of the most powerful automakers in the world pushing our government to stop wholesale the <laughs> importation of any cars. And to be fair, like that. Eli, to just for clarification, like with Max's example of a Mercedes being like $8,000, but in another country it was 5000 It was primarily done because the importing cost was like a couple hundred to like $1,000 or something like that. So like you're saving money. Yeah. Well, so, so that's one thing. But then, but then also like the real cost of the same car is very different depending on places. Oh, and, yeah. and at that time in Germany specifically... I, I just don't, I don't remember why, but the the, the Deutschmark was very uh, was very favorably valued to the dollar. It just made sense to go take your dollars and buy things over there. And so yeah, I mean, um, actually, one of my first jobs in America was working for a guy who formerly leased to Gray Import Mercedes. So had like three of them. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I mean, how it, much? Uh, I guess I'm curious. Like, um, does this? Is there anything involved with like taxes? Like yeah, if you were to buy so, something in Germany, like you know the tax dollars that were made from doing these gray imports. Um, well, you'd pay German taxes for buying yeah. the car. You'd pay the appropriate taxes for however shipping. Yeah, works. I was going to say you know how much it's, money it's, that was? it's a transactional yeah. tax yeah. as you go down. Yeah. Most importantly, I want to point out this whole gray market thing. Sure. It was it was legal. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, it was legal. So these folks were supposed to pay taxes. Now let's be real. That's not what happened most of the time. Um, hmm. I, I certainly know this guy was, I'm sure he paid some taxes, but I'm also sure that he did not pay whatever taxes were owed on, on, uh, on these, on these vehicles properly. Yeah. And could, you couldn't really you track that stuff really without a digital database back then. No. Yeah. It's good faith. Yeah. You filed yeah. your papers correctly. You could just say you did. No one's going to check. Yeah. It was, it was so <laughs> You'd be burdensome. like, Hey, I filed my taxes. Here's Mr. Benjamin. <laughs> That's just how things worked back then. Yeah. And also, just like real quick, if if the listeners didn't pick up, Max is really into law <laughs> and cars. Wait, wait, wait. I, I would, yeah, I want to rephrase that. Max is really into cars, and he happens to be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, not an attorney, a lawyer. Mostly into cars. Mostly into cars. He'll get into cars more mm. eventually. <laughs> what was the backstory with this car again? When I sent you this, oh, this is exactly what we're talking about. And this is what I—that's why I thought, like, it yes. reminded me of this. Yeah, this is—I think it's a Honda City Two or something like that. I don't remember the name. It's—it's it's a Japanese oh, market yeah. car. It's a very, very small, adorable little Honda. Imagine a—it's a fun little zippy thing. Yeah, mm. imagine a you know a basically a two seater sports car. The size you could throw a, a K twenty in there and just have a fucking blast. Is what this is. <laughs> it's about the size of a refrigerator. This thing um, was small. Yeah, and this car was certainly imported Steering here under the 25-year right exemption. Yeah. Mm. Actually, real that. quick, speaking of K2, because we probably should wrap up here in a second. Um, your thoughts on the K20 engine? I mean, powerful, super reliable. Honda made how many millions of those engines and how many of them have actually ever failed without a user being an idiot? Yeah. Um, and the, it, it's, a, it's a legendary engine. But I think uh, I think it just gets I think part of the reason it gets such a good rap because of the cars it went into. But but all the uh, like Honda just made really reliable engines. The other four cylinders they made were great too. There's the H22 series, which is like a 2.2 liter. Uh, that was also VTEC. Uh, I mean, just the VTEC system as a whole, whatever engine was put onto, 
is uh, it's one of the most reliable uh, systems of its type. Like, you know, if we're not, you know, naturally aspirated engines where it's just the pistons going up and down, it's pretty simple. But if, as soon as you start to add anything else, any moving parts, things get very complicated all the time. And somehow Honda was able to do that without really damaging reliability at all. Yeah. So just to give you some background, Eli, so the K20 is a four-cylinder Honda-made engine that is mechanically, as a mechanical engineer, like one of the most robust but cheaply made engines ever developed. What time period was this? Um, Probably nine. development started sometime in the late 80s, but yeah. we really know it from the 90s. Yeah. yeah. This engine is the, like, tuner's wet dream. Basically, like this engine, even though it came out stock in Honda cars at like what a hundred something horsepower, something funny, yeah, some weird number, but it was like under two hundred. This day and age, people can take this engine and get it up to a thousand horsepower wow. in a four cylinder. <laughs> well, well, to be fair, when you're doing that, you're having the spirit of the engine. Yes, like what is that? The, the, Theoclis's boat, where like you've replaced every single part. Yeah. It is de- technically <laughs> yeah. a K20 engine, but, but it's not. The, the the engine itself, like without doing all, all that crazy shit, can still get up to like a couple hundred horsepower. 350 yeah. without really damaging yeah. it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Like Honda took into account because like there were rules in Japan that prevented people from doing certain things, but Honda was like, hey, this is what it's supposed to be. But we basically factored in that it can perform higher. And people kind of figured that out. And it just became the engine for all the Japanese tuners and everything. And then when it came over to the U.S., people were like, fuck, this thing's incredible. Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, honestly, shout out to Material Sciences. Like these, like most of the cars that we drive, even not enthusiasts, they're these small four-cylinder engines with turbos on them and all that kind of stuff. And, and when you think of a turbo, I mean, it's just more compression and more force on the engine. I'm sure mm-hmm. if you if you give me some graph that looks at how much pressure per square inch of engine uh, there there is, you know, that, that number's probably tripled in the last 20 years, and, and our engines are, are more reliable than ever, and that is all due to uh, material sciences making stronger parts that are able mm-hmm. to, you know, you used to have to bore out cylinders kind of far away from each other, especially if you're going to put more power in there because you didn't want to destroy this wall because then it all blows up now you can do that with much smaller tolerances just because of how strong the components are and then you can make the package smaller therefore you can make the package lighter yeah. it's just all of this it's a virtuous yeah circle. it's it's been like back and forth between just like machining down a solid block of aluminum to cast mm-hmm. uh, aluminum or iron or some kind of mixture of something yeah. um, and then now magnesium internal parts yeah it's it's pretty fucking crazy i mean I wonder if we'll ever have 3D printed engines, engine blocks. Didn't that would be interesting. I someone did that. I haven't like some looked some into car it manufacturer yet. did that. 3D printed their engine block, not the engine block, but parts. Parts, engine parts. Yeah, moving. Oh, I yes. don't know. This, uh, I want to say it was like Ferrari or something or Porsche that did it. I, I'll tell you what, it wasn't Ferrari. These guys do not actually like technology. <laughs> yeah, don't no. let the, don't let their cars fool you. Mm-hmm. Like Por- Porsche would try something like that. Yeah. There was some like luxury like, yeah. quality brand that was like, yeah, we 3D, 
3D printed parts for this car and like are using it for like their their race vehicle or something. I, I just I don't understand if it's you know you could if you can 3D print a part and put it on your race vehicle it's different. But if you're 3D printing something made of metal that you, that is anything to do with heat, like I guess I just don't understand how. I mean, um, the to, 3D print itself can make that metal compact and strong enough. To, to be fair, that. rockets are being 3D printed. You know that, right? No, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple different ways. Um, so if you can 3D print a rocket, I think yeah. 3D no, printing an engine block is pretty easy. Yeah, that, that sort of does change my perception <laughs> yeah. on this. I don't, I don't want to get too too much into it, but there's, um, there's, there's powder beds of metal that use lasers that melt it on the spot as it's printing. So... Um, that's how, that's kind of like one way you can get a solid piece of metal. Um, the other one would involve, um, creating like a soft, uh, powder, like mold of this thing that you want printed and you just pretty much bake it in an oven and, uh, the particles of the metal will start melting and start fusing together and give you, um, something equivalent to a solid piece of metal just to and then shed some light on what you're asking about and then they'll take it into a cnc machine to fine-tune the tolerances and everything yeah because it's a metal piece at that point right okay uh cool stuff yeah material science is definitely really important and i I know that one of the biggest hurdles with um 3d printing does involve material sciences and research behind that um because once you start finding ways to actually 3d print um almost any type of material uh I think we're going to see a lot of crazy technologies in the future. I feel like I keep raving about it, but we're, you know, we're just making progress right now. Cool stuff. I think we're going to button it up there. Yeah. Um, appreciate listening this to this episode of Calculate Absurdity, and thank you, Max, for being the first official guest that Ooh. we had. A little bit of a... I don't remember which one it is. <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm going to turn that down. <laughs> um, what'd you think? I thought this was, this was really fun. I mean, it's, it's a little stressful, right? Cause it's what usually I would come in with like prepared bullet points and know really what I'm going to normally talk about. we do, mm. but figured we do something a little bit more ad hoc. I mean, a little, a little the, spontaneous, the whole concept behind this podcast was like, Hey, we have funny and thoughtful like conversations. Why not just hit the record button on it? And so, yeah, Obviously, that's how a lot of podcasts are made, but you know, it it helps us stay in touch with each other yeah. because a lot of us are going different directions in life, and and it is difficult. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. 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 <laughs>